So this morning we look to uh, Romans chapter 1. After about three years in Matthew's gospel, we have begun uh, Romans. Uh, So it's a blessing to be able to look to this text. Uh, Last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And this morning we'll look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 32. And so we're in the next line of exposition of God's word and explaining what it means. So uh, I wanted to read uh, I wanted to read for you verses 24 to 32 again and then we'll begin to explain what it means. Uh, verse 24 of Romans chapter 1 we'll reread it. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their minds would be dishonored among them. For they were, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function of that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The one thing I want to begin as we look at this passage is the the first thing that stands out to us is the gravity of all the sins that are committed uh, against God. And What it's building toward is what is said in Romans chapter 2, but also what is said in Romans chapter 3, because no man is righteous. No one understands. All have turned aside, and no one has the eternal resources to pay God back for the sins that have been committed against him. And so that's what this chapter is building toward, that no one can get comfortable and say, well, I don't commit some of these sins or I don't commit certain sins, and therefore I can commend myself to God on the basis of some self-righteousness. But the problem that we face, that all mankind faces, is that no one has eternal righteousness. And in fact, to receive eternal righteousness, it must be credited to you by Christ, who is perfectly righteous. And so Paul begins first by indicting the Gentiles for their flagrant violations, uh, their high crimes against Christ, and the fact in which the way that those crimes have and those sins have manifested themselves is that they have devoured one another. And so it was also so that the Jews could not sit back and essentially believe that they stood above the Gentiles because in Romans chapter 2 verse 1 he deals with them and he says therefore you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment for in that which you judge another you condemn yourself for you who practice the same things and he gets into why those who had the law who had Torah were just as guilty as those who did not and so that's what Paul is building toward but this morning we look to Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 32, 
And in the couple of weeks that we've been in this passage, the one thing that we've been mentioning is that uh, these sins that are committed in verses 26 to 32 are the effect of a cause. They're the effect of a cause. And what is listed before us in the section that we're in this morning are not virtues that the world tries to convince us that somehow lead to a better tomorrow. But instead, they are direct consequences. When you see these sins practiced, they're direct consequences of judgment against those who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That in spite of what they know about him, because it says uh, in the text, uh, it says that God made it evident to them in verse 19 of Romans chapter 1. He not only made it evident to them concerning his own person and concerning his own creation, but everything is evident to them. Except they will not believe and in not believing they recognize that they are those who should worship. But what they do instead is they divert their own worship away from God and begin to worship idols. So they know that they're created for the purpose of worshiping. But they uh, commit this betrayal of the purpose for which they were created. And you see that that continues down a path. And I would say that when we look at Romans 1. Especially Romans 1 chapter 18, I'm sorry, chapter 1 to verses 18, all the way down to 32. We're not looking at Romans road in the way that people would use it as a means of evangelism because there is no road to salvation for those who are mentioned in verses 18 to 32. If there is a road that leads to salvation, it's what's written in verses uh, 1 to 17 because the righteousness of God is revealed for those who are to embrace Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ himself. But as we begin in verse 18 of Romans 1, it is the wrath of God that is revealed against those who will not believe. And what's missing here is what is said in Corinthians concerning the things that we're about to discuss this morning is the such were some of you. Because in Corinthians, there was a full scale, wide scale repentance from the very things that plague uh, the very sins that plague the Greco-Roman Empire in that day. But here is the thing that you have to realize that in this truth exchange, it was God. It was not God who made the exchange. It was man. And God gave them up to the degrading sins that they wanted most. And that's his judgment. This this, in fact, however, does not implicate God in evil because God cannot sin and he cannot tempt anyone to sin. This does not render the perfect, holy and just God as some kind of tempter of man. But we know that God tempts no one to sin in any case, as it says in James chapter one, verse 13. So the scripture tells us who God is and what God accomplishes and even how God can use evil to accomplish his very good, perfect righteous purposes and yet not be responsible for the evil thing that's committed. But what happens here and what we see in these few verses that we'll look at this morning is God surrenders the sinner to what he or she desires most. He surrenders them to what they desire uh, the most. He does not cause them to practice the sins. Rather, their sinfulness brings about the kind of wrath whereby he hands them over Fully to the sins that they're practicing. So they're already practicing the sins. God simply gives them over to the sins that they're practicing. And it's what the prophet Hosea said in chapter 4 of Hosea, verse 17, in dealing with Ephraim. And if you remember, Ephraim's sins had 
grown countless against God and were worthy of judgment, just as all sins were. But there comes a time when God stops dealing with the sinner in the way of extending mercy and leaves the sinner alone to himself to experience judgment. And we see in Hosea chapter 4 verse 17, the same thing that's taking place in this chapter in Romans took place there where the prophecy says Ephraim is joined to items. Uh, I'm sorry, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. So it's the sense in which God abandons people to their own sin that they want more than him. And that's what happened. And that's what happened here. And it happened in Ephraim. But God does not participate in their wickedness, nor does he cause it. He has no hand in the causation of the sins that are committed. In fact, he has extended every measure of grace to call people to repent of their sins, to call people to live righteous and holy, and has even sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to atone for those whom he has chosen unto salvation. But what he does, even in the case of Ephraim, he permits Ephraim to practice their sins because they have persistently and consistently chosen them over God. And so he allows Ephraim to continue her course because that's what Ephraim wants. And so you see that here in the passage that we're looking at this morning, that those who are in the Roman Empire, in terms of the chronology of where we are in the passage, those who were in the Roman Empire and even throughout the ages beforehand, they were in such a state as though they had continually rebelled against God. And what God did then was hand them over to their rebellion. He said, here, it's what you want the most. Therefore, you can have it. And I would say this hour, the same can be said about hell because men simply choose hell for themselves and God hands them over to what they want the most. Except they realize it is a place of judgment. It is a place of judgment. So it is here with Paul's declaration against the Romans. Essentially, if we were to back up and look at what is said concerning uh, the words in chapter 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They knew who he was. They didn't honor him or give thanks to him. Instead, they became futile in their speculations and in their foolish heart was darkened. So since they chose to dishonor God in the sense that the sinner chooses only according to his nature, he thus gives them over to what they have chosen. Dishonor among themselves. This is not people endowed with free will. These are people endowed with the choice that they're making according to their nature. They're choosing according to their nature. And the nature has to be changed in order for the choices to reflect the new man. One can choose God when God changes his nature. God must, uh, God must bring him into, into his kingdom and grant him saving faith, regenerate the man, cause him to be born again, for that man to begin to choose the things that God has decreed for him. But this is not so in verses 18 to 32. And Paul will make that case as we move on to the future chapters and we look at this book in the coming days. But he gives them over to what they have chosen. And what they've chosen is dishonor among themselves. So you need not 
Uh, you need not be anxious about the world around you and wonder why are people practicing the sins that they are in this day and age. It's because they have chosen them according to their nature and God has handed them over to those sins. And in handing them over to those sins, they continue to commit dishonor among themselves because they won't honor God. And so to call sinners to honor God, we must call them to repent of their sins. We must call them to uh, account for their sins in this way. Either they trust on the name, work, and person of our Lord Jesus Christ, or they die in their sins and face God's wrath. But verse, tw uh, verse 26, what is said in these verses is essentially, in our view of how we're looking at it from this vantage point of, of the cross, we're looking at how the unbeliever devours other unbelievers, how they devour one another. And I believe here we have no temptation, perhaps, of thinking that any of these things are virtuous as the world does. But there may be some uh, who may be tempted to think that way because we live in a time where it is a compromising time where people are beginning to label sins as virtues. But here, the issue that we have is that you're looking at how unbelievers devour one another, how they attack one another, how they turn on one another, and how they lead one another to hell along the broad road. And what I call these are, they're essentially what you see before us in the verses that we'll look at. They're high crimes of passion against an infinite holy God. They're crimes of passion because that's what Paul calls them. He says that they're born from passion. And so he doesn't make passion, sinful passion, a good thing, something to flirt with or trifle with. And Paul calls them literally in the Greek in verse 26, he calls them uh, degrading passions. They're literally in the Greek. It's passions of dishonor, passions of dishonor. So that's essentially what's happening, that these people are are performing crimes against God, sins against a high and infinitely holy God. A perfect and just God, they're committing these passions of dishonor. Do you know what men and women call this today? They call this love. They call this love. These crimes, these sinful crimes against God are called love today. But what they miss is, and what is said even in our text before us, is that God himself stakes sole claim on his created ones. So you and I stand in no position for us to define love apart from God and apart from his definition of love. And so God defines it. We simply follow suit as to what it's supposed to be. He defines it to us. In fact, let's raise the bar. God defines everything to us. He defines everything to us. Everything that we could explain from our mouths, he defines for us. The Holy Spirit illumines in our hearts and we begin to speak forth the things that God has made plain. And also we define them in the way that God has defined them. Society does not push us in a corner to define things on the basis of how they want us to give those definitions. But Paul explains in the second part of verse 26 how these passions of dishonor are committed. He assumes that they're dishonorable. Not only toward God, but toward one another, because there's a natural means in which God has called men and women to function together. And when that's abandoned, it's not only that they're abandoning God, they certainly are, but they're abandoning one another. 
and they're destroying one another. He does not propose some form of fluidity. Let's be fluid. He doesn't say somehow we ought to have gender fluidity and gender expression. It's how I feel, therefore I am. Instead, Paul deals with nature and function. He says this is the nature of the person and this is how they ought to function. This is their nature and this is how they ought to function. And furthermore, as intended and designed by God himself. His wrath is upon them because they abandon the nature and the function. And so God alone holds the perfect dictation of the terms of our bodies. And their use as he alone is the creator. So he's the creator. He determines how our bodies function and he determines with whom they function. And so when we look at verse 26, it says, for this reason, after the truth exchange uh, for the lie, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Paul wrote that these passions of dishonor, these crimes of passion against the most honorable triune God are committed contrary to nature. That's where Paul begins, contrary to nature. He doesn't say they're contrary to feeling. He doesn't say they're contrary to society. He says they're contrary to the created order. And so God dictates our purpose. And when people bring up all kinds of arguments against that, or when people become upset that you would dare uh, express to them that they are in sin for abandoning the function that God intended for them. For one, they're angry with him, but two, they know this. They know that what they're performing is contrary to nature. You need not celebrate that which is normal and normative. You need only celebrate that which is not based on natural occasion. Celebrations are meant to emphasize those things that don't happen often and don't happen according to natural means. And so these things are not worthy of celebration they're worthy of condemnation. And yet, in the same sense, we have to, in the love of the truth that we have for God and in Christ, compel people that these things are against nature. They're against nature. And this is what Paul says. He says it himself. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And then he says in verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Paul here leaves no room for subjective feeling or expression on behalf of the sinner. He doesn't say the sinner chooses how this relates to another sinner or relates to God. Because first, the females exchange the natural use that God intended under the confines of male and female union and matrimony together. But because they bought the lie, this is why it is the way it is in the world in which we live. It's because they bought the lie and they gave up the truth to buy it. An exchange happened. 
It's not as though men have started from a standpoint of soul ignorance. It's that they took the lie and then bargained the lie away from, uh, I'm sorry, took the truth and then bargained the lie away from uh, the truth and made an exchange and then purchased the lie. And now they live the lie. And the value is at the expense of their own soul. But they bought the lie in exchange for the truth and they exchanged the use of their bodies according to his purposes and nature's function. So it's his purpose and nature's function. It's how the body ought to have itself function naturally according to God's standard. And instead what they did was they abandoned that and it started with idolatry. It started with worshiping idols. It started with failing to give thanks and to honor God. How do people come to this place of homosexuality and homosexual immorality? They come to that place because they fail to honor God and they fail to give thanks to him. And therefore, since they won't see him in the way uh, that he ought to be seen, they fail to see one another in the way that they ought to be seen. It's deception. It's deception. But make no mistake that this specifically includes immorality, sexual immorality, but not simply committed in the acts. Listen to me. It's not simply the acts. Paul is dealing with the affections that lead to the base acts. He's he's dealing with affections that lead to certain acts that are against God and against nature. So one can't make a separation between the acts and uh, and also the affections. Because there is, as God has defined, the natural use of the body in the realm of intimacy and marriage, just as there is in use uh, one which is contrary to nature. But let me help you understand. God is concerned with function and he's also concerned with affections. He always is. He's concerned with how you relate toward him, and he's also concerned with what you do on the basis of what you think about him. And it's the same way that we look at how these sins are, in fact, against him. But what happens is it did not stop with the females. We said it in verse 27. The males begin to do the same. And let me help you understand what is happening. It's that they're devouring one another. Because so many say today that these sins that are listed here have no effect upon another person. They say, well, let us live as we please because it has no effect on you. It has nothing to do with you. But I would argue to the contrary based on what the word of God says, that it does have an effect. And it's not simply because we're hoping for a better society. But what it is, is that they're destroying one another, just as all sins do. And we'll get to the other sins that are mentioned. But it's this manner of, according to these perversions, you're attacking, assaulting, and destroying one another, and leading one another to hell, hand in hand. And all of that is expressed by performing these perverse acts for one another, which are deemed contrary to nature. And if they're contrary to nature, they have natural consequences. They have natural consequences on a society, on a people, and on the church. The world at large, listen to this, the world at large and much of modern evangelicalism has grown soft on this approach. They've grown soft on the things I'm saying this morning. 
And before them, perhaps, sits crowds of people who need to hear what I'm saying this morning. And what they'll do is they'll stand before them and give them just enough to make them think that everything is okay. But I'm here to tell you that Paul is saying that these sins, they not only happen then, they're happening now. And he's showing you that there's no excuse for anyone who practices them. And so you have this approach today that wants to make provision for these crimes of passion. But listen to this. They have made provisions to embrace. I'm talking about modern evangelicalism as a whole has made provisions to embrace what God himself has deemed contrary to his created purposes. Contrary to nature, speaking of his role in creating us, God has created us. Therefore, he tells us how to function. And we agree with how he tells us to function. Speaking of our bodily constitution, the function of our bodies related to male and female given to us by the Lord. The Lord has made you either male or he's made you female. He hasn't made you both and everything in between. And you don't get to choose. And God has done so according to the glory of his name. And there's glory in that function for us. But listen to this. And this is why things are the way they are in the West. Modern evangelicalism, they've made some distinctions, unbiblical ones, even allowing for these passions of burning toward one another of the same gender. It's not an issue. But simply put, it's a matter of preference. And somehow you're getting through it as God in their minds has lowered the bar of perfecting holiness. The goal is just to get through it. Just simply try to stave off temptation in the affections. But this isn't temptation. When you begin to burn in your heart for those who look like you according to the gender, you are down the path of the truth exchange for the lie. You're there. What you have to be told is you have to repent. You have to trust in Christ alone for salvation. He makes no provision because he says it here. God gave them over. He doesn't talk about the axe yet. If you look at verse 26, he doesn't say God gave them over to the axe. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to the degrading passions. The passions precede the axe. And when the axe come, you know that you are simply consummating the degrading passions. You're simply giving birth to that which you want in the affections. We must say these things because the text says them. The word of God says them. The word of God is plain. But we live in a time where people want to skip over whole sections of God's truth in scripture. For fear of I don't know what. But we say what we say because we love the people whom God has created. We cry out to them in his mercy to say please turn from this course. Turn to God. Turn to Christ and live. Love him. Honor him. And that's what Paul did. And Paul wasn't loved for saying what he said. Paul didn't draw crowds for saying what he said. Paul's writing many of these letters from prison. Because he was faithful to proclaim these things. Even in the midst of a Roman Empire that was the fiercest known to man. But listen to this. You're calling out to people because of the indictment before them and the indictment to come in Romans 3. They despise the power of God and his decrees. The affections are not innocent. The affections are not innocent. 
It is why the whole nature has to change. It's why a person has to be born again, as Jesus Christ himself said. It's not like the sinner who's against Christ can simply have divine affections. He can't. Spiritual man cannot love the things that come from God's spirit. He can't appraise them. He can't understand them. He can't follow them. And it's because of what happened in the fall. But you're crying out to people because in this, what you see is they despise the power of God and they despise his decrees. It's not because we want society to return to some age in which this was all secretive. That's not what we want. We want people to repent so they can be right with God, so that they can walk with him. So that truly, even on this day, as the church abroad and at large is commemorating what Christ has accomplished on the cross and the fact that there is an empty tomb, there's more work to be done. It's not to simply step back and gaze at that reality, but it is to launch forward and to call people in light of it to honor God, to turn from their sins and to trust in him and live. But the affections are not innocent, nor is the person who bears them if they are contrary to nature and homosexual thought or practice. They're not innocent because that's what Paul says. Paul says that the acts in verse 27, he says the acts are inflamed by the affections. The acts are inflamed by the affections. I would say one can't perform the acts unless they have the affections. And the affections do not signify that somehow you're winning a war against temptation. It signifies that you have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. A lie about him and a lie about yourself. So deny, uh, desire is not separate from the sinful act, but rather desire feeds and fans the flames of the act. And listen, it brings about shame and, and reproach from God to mankind. It's why what is said at the end of the chapter is said. That it's not even so much those who perform the acts that are even indicted. Paul doesn't leave anybody out. He's an equal opportunity offender. If you look at verse 32 at the very end, and we'll talk about it, he says, but also they give hearty approval to those who practice them. In view for him are those who allow these things to happen and cheer these things on. So Paul is saying that they're just as guilty. They're an accomplice and accessory to the crime for the fact that they are giving approval to it. That they're not willing to stand up and say this goes against God. This goes against who he said. And I'm not only talking about what we've said concerning homosexuality, but also the sins listed in verse 29. Because so many have made those respectable. But if you look at these things, all of them bring shame and reproach from God. God is not pleased with them. That should be enough to make us not pleased with them. But the affections and the acts are against the very decrees of God's kingdom. You're looking at in this whole chapter, you're looking at, especially from verse 18, specifically the 32, you're looking at assault against God's kingdom. It's against God's kingdom. It's how he has desired for things to operate. What he has decreed. What he has accomplished in his son. And all of that is under assault. So they're assaulting the king. That's how we get to the very end. That's how we get to the necessity for Christ to come again. 
And because they are against his decrees, let us not forget, let us not this morning dull our senses to God's wrath, because that's where this passage is. In verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's where we are. We speak of God's wrath because the Bible speaks of God's wrath. We speak of God's mercy because the Bible speaks of God's mercy. But listen to this. When these sinful acts are performed, there is not only a built-in penalty for committing them, but there is a a retaliatory uh, payment that needs to be rendered. That is, the sinner is now responsible for hell and the sins that lead him there. And that's essentially what Paul is saying. The error. The error that they receive. It's built in penalty. And one's mind can go to all the penalties that are waged in that way. But essentially the overarching idea is that there must be recompense. When you go contrary to God's nature, there must be payment. There must be an account that needs to be settled. Because you've deviated from the truth. But listen to this. For in their persons they not only receive one another, but they receive the built-in errors and judgments befitting those who perform the acts. They receive the judgments. So to warn the people of this wrath that's coming, it's love. I would say to not warn the people of this wrath upon them that Paul mentions in this text to somehow say, you know, I've got a difficult text that's coming up on this fine Easter Sunday. I'm going to skip it. To do that is not love. That's compromise. That's hatred. It's the highest form of hatred. To not say what God says in his word. To not tell people what Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit from God of heaven. That God wants people to know these things. So here, it is the highest hatred. And I would say to permit this, either in a society or the Lord's church, it's not love. It's not love. It may draw a crowd, but it's not love. It's hatred toward, toward uh, God. And quite frankly, quite frankly, the dangerous road of, of not saying what God has said and compromising in this area, it's succumbing to fear. It's succumbing to fear. The kind of fear where you place yourself under servitude to the depraved mind of sinners. Where you begin to exchange the truth of God for a lie if you fail to warn people about the things that God hates. Because you make yourself subservient to the depraved mind. You begin to uh, serve the depraved mind because you fear that people will uh, do something in response or hate you or disown you or dislike you if you say the truth. The truth speaking it from the standpoint of God's love uh, in the sense in which the Bible proclaims it. But listen to this. We ought to be snatching people from the flames, not wishing the flames could be extinguished without repentance. We ought to be snatching people from the flames, not wishing all this could somehow go away. But in all this, there's more to follow. I'm telling you, this is not a picture of the redeemed. For here, as I've said, there is no such were some of you. This is the mark of persistent unbelief and wickedness. And it must serve as a caution. In fact, Paul says these individuals were filled with unrighteousness. They were filled with unrighteousness. 
Because after all the penalties that take place for the acts that we have seen that are perverse, there's something else that follows. And it's not the glory of man. It's not some kind of utopia. What follows is they're being filled with all unrighteousness and then there's other sins that take place that are indicative of those who are filled with unrighteousness and fail to honor God and give him thanks. When you look at verse 29, you're looking at the effect of verse 28. As they persisted in failing to acknowledge God and discern their sins against him as worthy of judgment. They looked to God and decided that their sins were not going to be judged by him. That they would rather judge their sins to be virtues and call themselves wise for performing sins. But they're handed over to do this and more. They are handed over not only to the acts, but again to the depraved mind that performs the acts. It's the mind that performs the acts. It informs the members of the body. And they also cheer one another on and give hearty approval in performing the acts. There's a cheerleading squad on the way to hell. And you're seeing it here in verse 32. He says it. But they are filled with true injustice toward God. And they express those things in the following sinful ways. And I mention all this because it's as I've said. This passage is showing you how people devour one another when they abandon God. It's not showing you how they live and get along all well without God in their midst. It shows what happens when they leave God. Well, first, you have wickedness. You have wickedness. And that speaks of calculated sins. That's essentially what the word means. Calculated sins. Plots to conceive of and perform malice. You're performing bad things. But it's calculated. That's what wickedness is. Wickedness doesn't happen by happenstance or accident. Covetousness. Covetousness. Which is not some kind of static or timid admiring what people have or wanting what your neighbor has. It's more than that. It speaks of aggressive acts of extortion, greed, and fraudulence in order to steal what is yours. Malice. Malice. Malice speaks of the specific bad acts of depravity. When a depraved mind wants to act, it, it performs malice as well. Malice is essentially related to the effect of wickedness, but it's also the, the, the platform that wickedness uses. Malice. It goes with depravity. Essentially, it has the idea of one who engages in trouble. One who engages in trouble. And then Paul says, full of envy. Paul simply could have said envy, but he didn't say envy. He said full of envy. But here the idea is that the total will, the emotions, and the actions are invested in being envious toward another. It's jealousy at its core. And the acts are performed due to jealous motivations. It's to become jealous of one another. And then murder. Murder is here the slaughter of another created in God's image. My point in saying a lot of this and defining it is because this is where the truth exchange leads. So many people only see what is seen in verse 26 and even verse 27. And they stop there and begin to deal with that. 
but they make these other things virtues. In fact, some may appoint so-called elders to the elder board on the basis of practicing these things or restore people with no uh, sense of repentance on their behalf and bring people into this. And bring people into the membership of their church on the basis of performing these things and not deal with them because they don't see it as a truth exchange. They see it as a struggle of righteous people. But here it's murder, murder. Jesus said that if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. But we get here by what is said before, but it certainly leads here because the depraved mind is handed over to it. How can so-and-so do this? He or she has never shown signs of this. Well, yes, they have because they have a sin nature. It's simply when one is handed over to a depraved mind that those acts are no longer restrained. And then you have gossips. You have gossips. And here it's not simply speaking of another, that which is untrue, but it is the sinful art of whispering. The sinful art of whispering. What I like to call whisper campaigns. Whispering against people to injure them. It is to have, you know, they, they have a phrase, secret admired. This is to have a secret slanderer, where people just go about slandering you in secret, not openly. This is a covert operation as they choose for themselves a corner to assassinate the character of another. They do this in quiet. And I'm telling you, this hour, this is so important. This hour, there's so many places calling themselves the church. And this is literally what their churches are founded upon. It's all the things that God is saying. You've exchanged the very foundation of who I am for the lie. And so they just go about gossiping and slandering. And this is uh, but but they'll rebuke the homosexuality. They'll rebuke the sexual immorality, but they won't deal with the gossip and the slander. They'll tell you murder is bad. Uh, they'll even try to legislate and march in the legislative uh, legislative protest concerning these things. But they won't deal with the very things that God hates. But do you know why God hates these things? Because and I'm about to say it with related to slander, because it's the devil's language. He's the father of lies. He is the diabolus. He is the slanderer. He is the accuser of the brethren. Verse 30. Slanderers. This is one who rails publicly. This is one who he doesn't choose the corner and the covert operation of secrecy. He rails publicly to defame openly. And he'll call into question the character of others by inciting lies and openly promoting those lies against those who bear God's image. And he's trying to win people to his cause and to help in the work of his father, the devil, in order to bring people to a certain disbelief. And this is done. Uh, this is done toward people who are made in the image of God and uh, the slandering. Is, has a sense of being untrue, and therefore it is ways against people who live according to God's righteousness. But this is all, I mean, this is all very serious. It is the devil's nature. It is the devil's native tongue. Because when the devil speaks, he is a slander. This one says, hater of God, haters of God, which is an impious man would have the idea of being an impious man, one who hates the creator and acts in accordance to that hatred. 
All these things stemming from failing to give thanks and to honor God and then exchanging the truth about him for a lie and performing idolatry and worshiping idols. Insolent. Insolent. This would be a virtue today. This would be a virtue. Many modern megachurches are built on this foundation of insolence. You want to know what insolence is? In, in the Greek, the word is actually derived from where we get our word hubris. Hubris. And what it means is excessive pride that is out of control and violent. A stirring self-confidence that scoffs in the face of judgment. Someone who is always about the work of elevating and promoting themselves over and against the king of kings. He is their rival. That's what insolence is. And then there's arrogance. There's arrogance. One who is haughty, proud, seeing themselves as supremely better than others. You know what the deception is? I'll tell you what the deception is, because I'm about to say it. For people to rebuke the sins that everyone else is rebuking and not deal with these. To look at the world and go, we have to have male and female unions. We have to make sure that people are not practicing homosexuality. We have to make sure that we have a moral society. And some will do it standing and waving their finger at you from the pulpit. And when they do it, they're living lives that are filled with slander, malice, gossip, showing that they're haters of God, and all the rest. They're boastful. They market and promote themselves. They're rivaling the great king that you and I are this morning standing forward and worshiping as the head of the church and giving honor and glory to his name alone. It's stirring self-confidence that scoffs in the face of judgment. All these things are under God's wrath, by the way. It's arrogance, as I've said. And I'll say it again. You are recognizing that some of these... Just as they were in the time of Rome, they were virtuous in that society because the political arena of the Roman Empire and what would become uh, the, the holy, quote unquote, holy, although it was unholy, Roman Empire, these were the virtues of that empire. But you're seeing and you're recognizing some of these have been deemed explicitly, no one's saying outwardly, but explicitly as virtues of the modern evangelical church because many of her men if they can be called that many of her so-called ministers are these things they're these things and that's the battle but paul goes on he says boastful it is to publicize yourself praying on the naive who esteem you more than they ought but you make your living promoting yourself above god to them It is empty boasting. The boasting has no foundation in truly who you are. It's a boasting apart from God. Inventors of evil things. Listen to this. This is not only scheming, but the sinful, wicked acts associated with contriving and discovering wicked schemes. You're trying to come up with them and you're trying to discover wicked schemes in order to put them forward so that you may ruin others. And in the attempt, you end up ruining yourself. Disobedience to parents here, not only to be contrary to them, but rather to uh, rather you have a depraved will 
that will not be persuaded that your parents are worthy of honor befitting those whom God entrusted the children under them. It assumes the honor of those parents who are the parents to the children. It assumes that the, the parents are honorable. And it assumes that they must be honored. But it assumes that the parents are also not exasperating their children as one who provokes them to anger, as said in Ephesians 6.4. But rather, this type of disobedience that Paul says is under God's wrath, it is antagonistic toward parents and their parental wisdom. And even more so, it's showing here that wisdom which is befitting of those who are in Christ. Parents who are in Christ. Foolish. Foolish. This speaks of the depraved mind, one who lacks divine wisdom and discernment, the ability to, to distinguish between good and evil by practicing its use. It is a gift. Untrustworthy. Listen to this. This does not simply mean failure to perform a task entrusted, but more indicting, it means to be treacherous. It means to be treacherous. It's a lot of that going around. Treachery is rewarded in so many arenas, in society and at large in what is known as the church. And I must make these distinctions. When you're dealing with counterfeits, you have to state that which is true and give the marks, the marks and the signs of, of the counterfeit production. Heartless, the act of one who is devoid of compassion and hard-hearted even toward the thought of compassion. That's what it means to be heartless. That you're not only one who is devoid of compassion, but you see compassion and you are hard-hearted and aggressive toward it. You also see how similar these are to the things that Timothy says will be marks of the last days. It's very similar. And then you see where it says unmerciful. By that he means cruel. Simply being cruel. No mercy. And I tell you that this is, these things are now considered virtues. They're now considered virtues. Speak up against them and you will be considered one who has no virtue. But listen, they do all this knowing fully the knowledge and the ordinance of God and that they are worthy of death who practice such things. The point in which Paul says, that all these things render a person worthy of the death that they're receiving because that's the wage that one earns by practicing sin without repentance. But these things are never sins committed that simply does not harm anyone. There's no such sin. All sins have a devastating effect upon the person and all those who are impacted by it. They all have consequences beyond the person. All of this assaults, attacks, and assails man one to another. And in this, listen to this. They not only do these things and believe that these things are suitable, but these things that are worthy of death, high crimes against God, they give approval. That word is in the present tense. By that it means continuously. Continuously giving approval. And I believe we've gotten to a time in our society where that approval is quite not only consistent, but it is quite advanced. They give approval and they give approval to those who practice these things. That's where Paul ends and we'll end our time there. And as we look the next week, we're going to look at how God deals with all this. 
We're going to look at how God does not allow even the Jews who have the Ten Commandments. They have the law. They have the covenants. They have the promise. And how even what Paul will say about them is you're without excuse. Because you were supposed to go to these people and deal with these sins. And instead you stood by and practiced them under the guise of religion. Let's pray.